Welcome to Straight from the Author, a podcast that gives you a front row seat as leading authors discuss their books at a Warren Public Library. Well, my friends, good evening. I'm John Wagner from East Lansing. I'm delighted that all of you came out in this forsaken weather to hear me. There must not be much else to do in town. <laughs> I should introduce my uh, compatriot, my partner over here, Diane Madlock. Um, Diane is kind of the computer lady. As I say, I'm from here, East Lansing, we live. Uh, I'm here to talk about uh, lighthouses, airplanes, photography, and the book that I've published of a collection of aerial photographs of all the lighthouses in Michigan. Occasionally I have a deal, and that is if somebody can name one that's not in the book, they get the book free, but if it is, they have to buy it. And <laughs> nobody's taken me up on that yet. I'm not quite sure why, but um, I may do just yet, let's stop and do a couple of housekeeping things along the way. Uh, so I think I said we're going to talk about airplanes, we're going to talk about cameras and photography, talk a little bit about lighthouses. There are a lot of people in the lighthouse field that are much more expertise than I am. I come to this with uh, experience in aviation. I've been flying since uh, 1958. That's 60 some years, I guess, isn't it? It's probably uh, longer than a few of you are older around here. I've got some 9,000 hours of flight time. I own a Cessna 172. Back not too long ago, I f happened to figure out, somebody was asking me how many airplanes I've owned. It's actually been four. I forgot that back in the 70s, I owned a glider, a Schroeder HP-11. Um, I've worked in the aviation business for 40 years. I uh, sold airplanes for eight years. I flew charter freight and people for two or three years. I flew corporate contract work for a couple of years. And then I was with the Bureau of Aeronautics, which is a state of Michigan agency. And I was involved in the inspection of airports and a lot of liaison with local communities and so forth in, in airport projects and development and so forth. I got off in about late 85, 86, I was visiting a an old fraternity brother who lived down at Holland. His wife had taken a number of photos of the Holland Harbor Lighthouse through the years and asked me to critique them. And I did. And the next day, flying out, I thought, gee, this could be an interesting idea. I flew over the Holland Harbor Lighthouse and uh, took some photos of it. Next time we got together, we talked about it. And then I decided I would take more photos of lighthouses. And that began, as I say, late 85, early 86. And um, as I assembled this collection of photographs, I had an opportunity to display it in various places. Old Kent Bank in Grand Rapids had their whole lower atrium once and some of their other branches. And I always like to go in and sort of stand by and listen to hear what people might have to say. And maybe the man would say, ah, I like this picture over here. And she'd say, I like this picture. And invariably, somebody would say, what he needs is a book. So I thought about that a little bit. And um, I was mentioning this to my friend Lou Schillinger, who was up at the Port Austin Reef Lighthouse. You know, us, here we are like this, us Michiganians, you know, it's always the thumb. <laughs> Port Austin's right up here. And Lou said, John, if you're going to do a book, he said, you should do all of Michigan's lighthouses. So that embarked off on a much larger project. Because, you know, Michigan, we have 3,100 miles or 3,200 miles of shoreline more than any other state in the Union, and also more lighthouses. Not only do we have lighthouses at shore locations to identify ports, for example, and navigational sites, but we also have offshore uh, lights. That was a signal there. You see that? That was one. I'm saying, I'm saying the hand signal that I got. That was a, um, and we also have a number of offshore lighthouses, which mark dangerous shoals and reefs and so forth. So that meant to flying to a lot of these other locations to collect them all. People would ask me, how did I get started in this? 
Well, my father was with the Michigan State Police for 26 years. That's him here on the left. And back in the 20s during Prohibition, the state police would confiscate the cars of bootleggers and they would turn them into their own cars. My dad here was at the Flint Post, or this might have even been before that. He's with the biggest fellow that was ever in the state police at that time, six foot seven, and his nickname was Tiny, of course. Wrong way. Here we go another way. This was down at the New Buffalo Post, Dad and the troops that were there. And always when I was growing up, there were guns and cameras all around. I had access to all of them. And this certainly was probably about the first camera that I had used. And ironically, it used a 120 roll film, which 50 years later is the same film that I used in the Bronica camera to take the pictures that were all in this, this book. Mentioned I've been flying for 60 years now. Back a little while ago, I got this uh, award from the FAA, Master Pilot Award, supposed to be with 50 years of accident-free flying. Um, I think I had a little bit of luck along with that. Like everybody in life, I think I probably did a few stupid things along the way, but I survived them all. And 50 years again from the FAA. <clears throat> My airplane is a Cessna 172L. Do I have any pilots in the room? Just one? Oh, okay. Do we have anybody here from the FAA? <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> None. Cessna 1972, Cessna 172L. And this is the airplane. I have a hangar in Lansing that I share with another friend. I have a lot of modifications to this airplane. I sometimes say everything was ever designed for a Cessna 172 I have on it. Uh, this is referred to as a STOL kit which is an acronym for short takeoff and landing. And what it does, it gives better stability, slow flight characteristics. So when I get the airplane slowed back to take pictures, uh, it's probably a safer environment to be in. And this stole kit has five components to it. Uh, one is a new leading edge on it, which is sort of a conical cambered edge. And then this is a fence right here which matches up the original leading edge with the new one that, that uh, runs out. My airplane came from the factory. My one pilot over there, can you recognize something about this? Okay, right up here, we have, there's four of them on the top of the airplane, that's correct. Uh, those four of those that are lift rings, so you lift the airplane up, take the wheels off, put the floats on, put it in the water and so forth. Uh, that's a fair bit of advantage. It certainly adds some value to this, uh, this airplane. Again, the hangar, my partner, I put him to work every now and then, pushing the airplane in and out. This airplane came originally with a 150-horse Lycoming engine. I modified it to a 180. It's a four-cylinder. It's air-cooled. And uh, don't let this little lack of paint on here deceive you at all. That just kind of gets blown off as time goes on. Another shot in the winter, again, Lycoming 180. It's a four-cylinder, air-cooled engine. The airplane flies about 135 miles an hour, 110 knots. Four-place, high wing. And this is the uh, cockpit. It's capable of IFR flight, which I have an airline transport pilot certificate, so I do fly IFR much more many years ago than I do more recently. Uh, this is a GPS, which is a yoke-mounted. Everything today is switching over to GPS. By 2020, January, uh, the GPS and satellite-based separation of aircraft is being transferred to all GPS system from ground-based conventional radar. That's a major transition in air traffic control, and it, it allows direct flights and so forth. Uh, I don't go anywhere flying the old VOR stations that are located various places around the country. It's always, as we say, direct, direct. Interior seating. Um, this happens to have a couple little seat cushions over there for uh, Miss Matlock. Lift rings, we talked about before, part of the Cessna seaplane kit. The fence, another part of the uh, stole kit that controls air that flows across the top of the wing. 
I have what's called a, a pulse light on the nose of the airplane, which is an LED, and it flashes. And it, is, uh, it sort of gives a very good visual reference to other airplanes. When I'm taking f photographs and so forth, I'm probably not looking all around as much as maybe what a lot of people might be, because I am sometimes looking down towards the ground. And that's one additional. And then I have strobe lights on the tips as well, too. So we try to maintain uh, as best vis visual acuity as we can. And then up here, showing you a trade secret. This is a magnet that I use to hold the window up when I'm taking pictures. So I can shoot right out the side here. That's a what's called one of the super magnets that will hold 18 pounds. One of the other airplanes I had was a, a seaplane, Lake Amphibian. I worked for Lake Aircraft in 1965. Anybody know, recognize where this picture was taken at? Beaver Island. Yes. That is the Beaver Island uh, lighthouse in the backdrop. It's an amphibian which lands on the land as on the water. Uh, I owned this until maybe six or eight months ago. I finally decided that I should sell it. I didn't need two airplanes. And secondly, before I do something stupid like landing on the water with the gear down, that is not very good. Another shot inside the Lake Amphibian. Not all flights were uneventful. Um, this is a, a piston that was removed from a Lycoming engine that was in a Piper Twin Apache, uh, the one I was going into Marion, Ohio, somewhere probably about 1964 or so, hauling one of the La Mafioso bosses from South Bend. We had sold an airplane to an oil driller down in, I was going into Marion, Ohio, and I lost the left engine in the airplane. His name was Jimmy Savarese. Jimmy was so big that he sat in the back seat of this airplane, had a big bench seat in the back end of it, and he smoked big black Havana cigar all the way there. The airplane was filled with smoke. Couldn't tell if it was coming from Jimmy or coming from the engine. I was about 40 miles out of Marion, I lost this. It swallowed the valve, chewed the valve up. And you can see right here, if you look very carefully, that is the valve where it was in impinged and impregnated right in the top of the piston when we took it apart. Uh, Jimmy got out of the, uh, the airplane. The only thing he said was, John, he says, if the game ain't hard, nobody's barred. And that was his comment to flying on one engine for 40 miles. And a, a, a lighthouse that's not here in Michigan, but a lot of people do recognize. This is Split Rock up in Minnesota. It's about 50 miles north of Duluth. And this sets, as you can see, um, a couple hundred feet at least up. And it took a substantial period of time to construct this. There were no roads going to it. And the first year was involved in lifting all the material, the supplies and so forth, from the water's edge up to the top. And you can see the keeper's homes back here. There were three homes and supply stations, and that's Split Rock Lighthouse. Split Rock is one of five uh, lighthouses on the Great Lakes that have a second-order Fresnel lens. I think let's see, we have four of them in Michigan waters, and that's the other one, if I recall correctly. This is my earlier airplane, the third one, Cessna 172 also. Um, that's the Bronica camera that I Take everything with that's up there. Um, that was a while ago. How am I? Pretty well preserved. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, there's one right there. That's more current. That was only 20 years ago. OK, Holland Harbor Lighthouse. I talked about the whole project sort of began there with my friend uh, Jan Lambright and uh, taking pictures of everything. My cameras. We'll try to go through this rather quickly. Who owns a cell phone? <laughs> You're all professional photographers. Ah, Jeez. Professional? The first digital <laughs> camera that I had, today's cell phone has a, about a five and a half uh, millibyte, milli, megabyte, megabyte, megabyte file size. And the first digital cameras were that or even less than that. 
Uh, the newer one that I use, the Canon, which is up here now, is 21 and a half uh, megabyte file size. First camera that I had that I used, I, I was in Alaska for a couple of years. Uh, this camera I got up there, uh, it's an Exacta 35 millimeter. It was manufactured in East Germany. And we used to get cameras and parts shipped in through Anchorage. And the customs people there could not read German. Everything was in German. So we got the things in duty free into our camp out at uh, Brooks Lake. I uh, also had a 4x5 I bought from a sergeant at Elmendorf Air Force Base. I used this occasionally starting back in probably 1960 or so, uh, taking some aerial photos. But it really did not work out well because this camera has a bellows. And the bellows uh, would, f would flutter in the breeze that would come in the airplane and could not, you could not rely on a good, sharp resolution for an image. This is another uh, speed graphic. The other one was a, this is a crown graphic. The other one was a speed graphic. This has a metal body. That had a wooden body. Then I tried a Rapid Amiga. That didn't work out real well. Uh, it had a viewfinder uh, that was separate and not through the lens metering. Then I finally wound up with the, uh, a through-the-lens system, the Mamaya 645. It was a 1 and 7 eighths by 2 and 1 quarter inch negative size. Not a bad little camera. I did some stuff with that in the early years. And then I wound up with the Bronica GS1. And this is the bag here that uh, various parts of it. I'll go through this quickly, too. I got a lot. I've got extra pictures in there. I really should call out some of these. That's a... 200 millimeter lens um, right here. I like to use the 200 millimeter because it tends to, the phraseology is foreshortened the background. So when I want something in the background to sort of stand out along with the subject in front, it will shorten it up a little bit. Uh, it has interchangeable film backs. I would run, uh, I think I have uh, four film backs. There's a dark slide that you pull in and out to uh, open up the film, and it has an eye-level viewfinder, which is right up here. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. Eye-level viewfinder, right here. On one occasion, I had a problem with this viewfinder. It would sort of come loose a little bit from the camera. I never paid too much attention to it. I just kind of push it back down, and it was okay. I was up um, on one fall day on northern Lake Michigan on South Fox Island taking some pictures. And this was about the time that I was switching over from a, the Bronica film camera to the Canon digital camera. So I would take some shots with the Bronica, and then I would switch back and forth to the Canon. And it was a particularly gusty, blustery, rough day. And uh, I picked up the Bronica camera, and I went up to take a shot with it, and the turbulence bumped my forehead against the viewfinder right here. And as it fell off, I put my elbow up to try to catch it, and it went out the window. I looked down, and here it's going like this down into uh, the upper Lake Michigan. So if any of you are up there diving this next summer, uh, keep your eye open for that viewfinder, would you please? Okay, Veronica body. Viewing screen, backs, lighthouse. We'll throw a few lighthouses in between. Anybody know what this is? 14-foot shoal. It's up off of Sheboygan. And um, it almost looks like some people think this has the appearance that this structure is moving through the water, which in fact, of course, what it really is is the currents flowing through. And we have wind ridges along here. And then in the lee of the building is uh, open water. Several shots are, appear that way. Back to cameras, dark slide, film back, roll film camera. I point out uh, to, I did a presentation here back just this last month, I guess, to a, a fourth and fifth grade class over in Farmington Hills. The Haley, it's called, I think it is, school. Um, I like to point out to the kids, technological advances. This is the role of Kodachrome film it goes in the Bronica camera. There are 10, Im 10 images on this camera. This is a compact flash card that's in today's Canon camera that holds 256 images.
That's technology overtaking the photographic world. And then this is the uh, Canon camera that I have today. It's the Mark II 7D, whatever it is, the lenses I use for it. My favorite lens is really the, um, I think it's this one right here, yeah, 204 to 105. You know, zoom lenses, when they first came out, were very somewhat inaccurate. I never had a lot of confidence or trust in them. Today, they've got them knocked dead. It's a perfect piece of equipment. And then occasionally, when I'm doing some air-to-air -air photography, I may use, or on the ground, shooting airplanes and so forth, a 300 millimeter zoom lens. Canon Mark uh, 7D Mark II, another shot of that, another wide angle lens, Mark D2. The, when I, um, I didn't really have this while I was on the, working on the project. After I'd finished the book, I bought a, a gyroscopic stabilizer, which mounts underneath the camera. This is a little bit what it looks like. I once was doing a presentation to a fourth grade class, I guess it was. I said, who's the strongest kid in the room? Boy, a hand went up just like that, and I had this attached to the camera. I said, uh, here, take a hold of this. And the whole thing weighs just a few ounces less than 14 pounds on the bottom of the Bronica camera. And I run that with one hand because I fly with my left hand and run the camera. With, I think that's right, isn't it? Fly with the left hand? Uh, I, have to, I have to think about that every now and then. Uh, run the camera with the right hand. So I said, hey, come on up here and grab a hold of this thing and feel of it, you know. And I said, uh, that's a little heavy, is it? Yeah, he says, uh, not too bad. He, the, the teacher of that class was the daughter of one of my friends at uh, aeronautics. And she was aghast at the fact I had even come up to hang on to that, probably uh, $10,000 worth of equipment. She said, that was the most irresponsible kid in class. Anyhow, okay, here we go, onward. Um, another lighthouse. Uh, I like to use this as an example of what I would refer to as composition that I like to achieve when I'm flying. This is the Spectacle Reef Lighthouse. Anybody know where that is? Upper Lake Huron, uh, northeast of Sheboygan, 20, 25 miles. It is a uh, very unusual and picturesque lighthouse. I think I've got some pictures of it a little bit later on. But it was constructed of stone that was quarried out of the Marblehead Quarry in Marblehead, Ohio. The stones were all cut and formed. And it was uh, constructed, built down in Marblehead. Then each of the stones were numbered. It was disassembled, disassembled moved into Upper Lake, Michigan and then reassembled. It took four years to construct that whole lighthouse. And it was named Spectacle Reef because when you look down at it, I've got some pictures, I don't think I have them here, that you look down, down at the end of it, uh, there are, you can sort of see a couple of reefs underneath that look like spectacles. Composition. This particular picture, I wanted to get the windows that were in the side of it, I wanted to get the davit that was off on the side over here used to lift boats and things up into it. This is the engine room over here. And this is an example of reefing ice. Reefing ice is the result of wind and wave action over the winter time that piles up ice all against the side of the lighthouse. And we can see here in the spring of the year, it has started to melt away, pull away from it. And uh, I like to use ice, for example, as a backdrop in a photograph because it offers a much different and varied <clears throat> example or background to any given image. Spectacle Reef also had a second order Fresnel lens. Uh, White Shoal was another and Rock of Ages was another. I forget what the fourth one was in Michigan waters. Talk a little bit about the book. Anybody in here ever published a book? Nobody. Gracious sakes alive. Okay, I guess I can tell you anything then, can I? <laughs> I published this book myself. It's a real um, learning process. The uh, first printer shorted me 2,200 copies of the book. This book was a quarter million dollar project. I'm not a high roller. Old Kent Bank financed it for me. Long story about that, but I won't bore you with that. Um, I guess, I don't know what else I can say about it. Uh, White Shoal, my, probably my favorite lighthouse, is on the front cover. 
And uh, that also had a second order Fresnel lens, which today is on display or exhibit at the Whitefish Point uh, Lighthouse. People been there, have you? Been to Whitefish Point? Class act. We were just up there a few months ago. And that lens is nine feet in diameter. Nine feet in diameter. Big, big. The whole lantern room up here is 13 feet across. One of my goals back several years ago was to go up on the top of the lantern room and stand up there with a copy of the book and hold it while my aerial photographer friend Jim Anderson from Traverse City would be going around taking pictures of me standing on top holding the book. Never, I, got I got talked out of it. Pancake ice. It's an early picture in the book. I was taking some pictures, I think it was off, off of South Haven, and noticed all of the ice out offshore. And I was flying around kind of looking at it, and I thought, well, this makes an interesting picture. This was a picture I took. And I actually observed how uh, this ice formation occurred. And that is when you have very calm day, no wind, and cold, a flat sheet of ice will freeze. Wind comes up, it starts wave action, and then it breaks up this big flat sheet of ice into chunks. And then, actually, as the waves begin to come in, they roll over the edge of these chunks. It weights it down, and that makes them rotate all the way around. And that's what causes the formation of the ice all around the edge of that, and that's referred to as pancake ice. Printing of the book. Um, this is a printed page. It's 28 by 37. Um, when I'm talking to kids about things like this, I say, do you notice something unusual? I say, oh yes, it's upside down. There's the room. Well, it's upside down. That's the printed page. And that is uh, put together with a collection that's called a signature. There are 12 signatures. And on each page, there's six images uh, on each side. So that's 12. And the book is referred to as having 14 12s. That ought to put you all asleep, shouldn't it? Wow. OK. This, you can say, boy, they really goofed up on this page. No, it's not so. They would run sheets through the press uh, to wet the plates. Do we have any printers in the room? Did I ask that a minute ago? Printers. No printers. OK. Um, to wet the plates and so forth. So they would use a sheet uh, two or three times. And this is one that's been used over. This is a 12-page signature. And you can see each half of the page right here. This is called the book casing, book block, which is all the text parts of it. Um, we did some little snazzy things with the book. We put varnish down, what's called a varnish plate. And it actually is the reflection of the water off on the side of the page. Not every uh, book that came out was perfect. Here is one where the signature and the page and the two were upside down. The, when I was at the bindery, which is Nickelstone Bindery in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, this book in this large format, 11 by 14, was too big to be, th there's a lot of mechanization in smaller books. Machines do all the thing. But the size of this book, there was a lot of handwork that had to be done. And when these signatures were gathered, there would be like an assembly line that would go down, and there'd be ladies sitting on each side of it like this, and there was a belt that would go through. And they'd each have a signature that they would drop on the, one on the top of the other. And these ladies, in between dropping signatures, um, would be puffing on cigarettes and drinking a cup of coffee. So every time I had something like this occur, upside down, I remembered one of these little hillbilly ladies down there probably sipping coffee or smoking a cigarette. This was a storehouse I had, a warehouse for the books. This is a, a picture of the first printing of the book, which had an Irish linen cover. It was imported from England. And when we did the second printing, uh, the cost of this had become prohibitively expensive. It had gone up 300% in cost. So we used a domestic fabric on the front. There were perhaps two, three, four hundred copies of the book. 
that were bound with this original Irish linen cover, but were from the second printing. And I had a friend of mine that said, boy, that should be a collector's copy of the book. So it's a little more expensive, but it has that attribute to it. Some of the stitching can be bad. There were seconds in the book. Um, the printer, see if I can think of these figures correctly now. Uh, the printer uh, wanted like 17% overage, and the bindery wanted 10%. That means to do 10,000 books, I had to produce 12,700 printed sheets of paper. I bought all the paper and shipped it to the printer in the bindery. Bad stitching. Here was one I goofed a signature on it, so I cut it out. It's a display copy. Bad trim job on the right side, another second example. Um, here were signatures that were out of order, page numbers and so forth here out. I would occasionally get these back in the mail. Here's a book that was actually upside down. Another one, inverted signatures, page 33 and page 49 that were back to back. This is one where it was crimped, the binding of it, hit a little too hard, edge of the book. Also, the warehouse unfortunately developed a leak in the roof and uh, damaged a few books. Some more here. Again, I then got smart and covered everything with plastic. Um, do I have any teachers in the room? Dee Dee says, move it along. I got a hand signal here. Two, 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 two. Okay, no teachers. Just quickly then, I have books that I preserved or scrap parts. All these parts over here, all these parts, uh, I salvaged and give them to teachers for classroom work. They can do anything they want to with them, cut them out, paste them up, do whatever. Kids learn from it. Lansing Shoal Lighthouse. Again, the reefing ice in the lee of the lighthouse structure. We can see over here where the water has washed up against it. Teacher offer, okay, we talked a little bit about that. I occasionally do presentations to schools. This was one we did for up in St. John's, fourth grade class. Lots of questions, talking about the book casing, printed sheets, lots of questions. I also did back in 2002 a calendar for the Michigan Bureau of History. Um, I have the real calendar up here someplace. I guess I'll save that and look at it later on if we want to. Show you what it looks like. It's kind of interesting. Um, it's 11 by 14 in size. And the way it was designed, we, I was, grew up in the age of centerfolds. <laughs> so we made a centerfold. That's the Rock of Ages lighthouse up off of the west end of Isle Royal. Again, another shot. This is the front cover of the uh, calendar. Lansing Shoal Light again with reefing ice in the lee. Um, talked about the first printing with stamps. Anybody remember seeing the um, stamps that were produced by the Postal Service? One stamp representing each of the lighthouse on the Great Lakes. This happens to be Split Rock, Lake Superior. St. Joe, Michigan, Spectacle Reef, we've talked about, that's Lake Huron, uh, uh, Marblehead in Ohio, and 30 Mile Point, Lake Ontario. I did 500 books the first day of issue. Stamp collectors, anybody stamp collectors in the room? Geez, what do you guys do with your local, your, <laughs> your idle time, anyhow? Come to the library. Come to the oh, library, okay. Um, at first day of issue, uh, they were stamped in the basement of the Sheboygan, Michigan post office, first day of issue. It was the only place in the United States those stamps were released. And the date was June 17, 1995. I do my own printing. This is a Hewlett Packard Z3100 printer. This is a, uh, a, a print that I have framed, produced, and so forth. I do my own framing, mat cutting, and so forth. That happens to be the Harbor Beach Lighthouse off the thumb. This is uh, a piece that I did with the stamps on it as well, too. And each of those are photographs that I took of those lighthouses. And this is a, a, a limited edition piece that I have produced. Nice. These harbor lights, anybody collect any of the harbor lights things from, um, yeah, Bill Younger's harbor lights. 
these are the five uh, lighthouses that were produced from the postal stamps. And I made a shelf out of, I think that's walnut, that those five pieces go on and they sit in front of that earlier piece. Uh, this is a poster that I did for the centennial of the Round Island Lighthouse up off of Mackinac. Anybody remember Somewhere in Time, the movie? Okay, that's where uh, Chris Reeve and Jane Seymour, Seymour not Fonda, Seymour, yes, had a, had a rendezvous at the Round Island Lighthouse. This was the opening ceremony. This is postal stamps again. This was a little button that was used to raise money when the whole lower floor of the Round Island Lighthouse was ripped out by reefing ice that pushed up and tore the whole lower floor. The solution to that by the Coast Guard was to demolish the building. Fortunately, there was enough money raised to keep it. This again is a closer look at it. This picture is the opening ceremony of the lighthouse in 18, whatever it was, 95 or something such as that. Okay, uh, White Shoal Lighthouse, second order Fresnel lens, uh, has been converted over. This is a solar system which now lights a standard type of lighting system. This is the, uh, a schematic or architectural drawing of the lantern room that is at White Shoal. Another picture, an architectural drawing or elevation of the whole lighthouse. Another shot of White Shoal. Um, anybody remember last winter the Detroit Free Press had several pictures that people had taken of blue ice. Uh, they made quite a thing out of it. Blue ice is formed by something, the compression, there's no air in the ice. That's about, um, it's, it's located, the best reference is about 20 miles southwest of the Mackinac Bridge. If you're crossing the bridge on a clear day and you know right where to look, you can just barely see it. It probably sets about five or six miles out from Wilderness State Park, which is way up over here. It took me six and a half years to do this whole project. That was the photography, the writing of the text, the publication of the book, um, the whole project. And over that period of time, I flew a total of about 800 hours, but not all of it was taking lighthouse pictures. Um, over that period of time, I'd probably been to most lighthouses four, five, six times. I had a general idea as to what I wanted to show in the picture, so I had some preliminary idea but then always going around it maybe once or twice when I would have to judge the, the winds, the drift correction. Um, the 172 has a strut, so I have to either shoot in front of the strut or behind it. Often I would go in and shoot in front of it, and then as I would be going by, I could swing back and take another shot of it. Uh, mostly, I would say that uh, I would circle maybe one place five, six, seven times. The most I ever did that I can remember was Minneapolis Shoal way up by Green Bay. I had trouble getting a good shot of that, and uh, I finally got the right time, and I bet I took 15 or 20 pictures of that, uh, that lighthouse. Whatever, I think whatever it looks like, for example, right here, uh, several of the shots I have taken in the past, this is somewhat with some backlighting that we can see over here. The sun is about, um, you know, about maybe 60 degrees off this way. Here's the shadow. I like to incorporate shadows within the picture as well. And also, taking a picture uh, at a, like a three-quarter angle, uh, rather than directly across like this, it, I think it offers a better perspective of it to shoot at an angle such as this. Uh, and it depends on just you know, what I see in a given location uh, that I want to uh, try to incorporate within a given picture. I like the winter. I think that it offers a varied background. Uh, to the image. Uh, I remember once I had taken some pretty good pictures what I thought of Lansing Shoal I was going by in the summer. Took a few shots of it and I developed the film and um, decided why I like to shoot in the spring of the year or in the winter and that is it looked like a chunk of concrete with bird dung all over it. So it offers. This going back to the Spectacle Reef Lighthouse, we've got a few shots of this of the interior too. And you see how this cut stone is. I think I've got earlier shots. This cut stone is uh, really uh, just magnificently done. It's all edged all around the side of it. All these stones were cut, and then it was, it was floated up to Upper Lake Huron and then constructed on site. 
Uh, this is looking up at uh, the top of the lantern room. The University of Colorado, four or five years ago, uh, was interested in making observations of the weather uh, to determine um, lake effect for one thing and uh, whether or not a, uh, the lake was frozen over, what the temperatures were, the winds were, and so forth. And this was, they were doing some installation work of all that uh, telemetry equipment at that time. And that was up at the top. Here's a closer shot of the stone. And you can see how all this edging is so neatly done around here, just fantastic. And all those stones all fitted in together. Again, looking on up at it, <clears throat> they put some wrapping, steel wrapping around uh, the tower back a number of years ago because it was, some of the stones were beginning to shift and, and separate a bit. Chris Point Lighthouse up on Lake Superior. Up until a few years ago, this was very difficult to reach. And it was just about a year after I took this picture, the little entryway house was washed away by the high water of Lake Superior in storms. It has since been replaced by the Chris Point um, Lighthouse Group. They have a clever little logo that they use. We like our beacon, B-E-A-C-O-N, we like our beacon crisp, is what they say. Um, interesting shot here. This is the old Mackinac Point Lighthouse, of course, the Mackinac Bridge, looking north over uh, towards St. Ignace. You were asking about how low do I fly. This required some pretty low flying, I would guess. I don't know, 150, 200 feet or so. I'd make two passes around, and then I'd get out of town before somebody had binoculars, you know, looking to see where I was. But this, again, is the example of the 200 millimeter lens on the Bronica camera. A standard lens is 100 millimeter. 200 millimeters twice the standard focal length. And that's what allows me to get the lighthouse here in the foreground, the bridge, and then St. Ignace in the backdrop. This is the Pole Reef Lighthouse. Again, wintertime in the lee of the currents. And we see some interesting shadows, very still water. Pole Reef is just off of Sheboygan. Point Betsy, Sleeping Bear Dunes. Point Betsy is the entryway to the Gray's Reef Passage, which runs from Point Betsy all the way up to White Shoal, which is the turning point uh, for freighters that go through the Straits and either down through Lake Huron or up into St. Mary's and up into Lake Superior. It saves probably an hour of travel, and you know I don't know what the cost for a thousand footer is per hour, but an hour's time saving is pretty good. Some of the passages in there are pretty narrow, uh, perhaps as, as little as 1,200 feet. My sister-in-law's brother was a captain with the, um, the Interlake Steamship Company. They were going up there once in ballast, which means that water was aboard the boat to offset the weight of the cargo, steel or whatever it may be, uh, taconite. And they sent the message down to the engine room to let off ballast. And they misread the message, and they took on ballast. And they hit a boulder in the bottom of the Gray's Reef Passage. It put a big dent in the bottom of the Stuart Court, I think it was. And uh, didn't put a hole in it, fortunately. That's one of the hazards of taking the inside passage. Spectacle Reef inside. OK, we talked about that a little bit ago. This is what it looks like the inside. This is the stairway that goes up, part up to the lantern room up here. And this has been abandoned by the Coast Guard for, I don't know, 25 years, whatever it may be. It was recently purchased by a young man from, uh, I think it was Massachusetts. And I think he owns either two or perhaps three lighthouses. And his objective is, is to restore this. He has a mammoth job doing it. And the other part about it is the logistics of uh, reconstructing an offshore lighthouse is horrific. Also, White Shoal, which we saw earlier, was purchased just this last year by a fellow from Traverse City. And they're doing uh, really some monumental work in uh, restoring that lighthouse. Again, major projects. I once went out with Bill Shepler on one of his uh, lighthouse cruises. We went underneath the Mackinac Bridge, and it was probably an 8 to 10 inch chop. We rounded White Shoal and was 8 foot waves. Billy Shepler said, I think it's time we go home. OK, I'll just take you through a lot of shots. This is what the plaster on the wall is all falling off from. Coast Guard kind of left it a little bit rough in spots. This is down in the engine room. Another shot in the engine room. 
stairs going on up to the living quarters. This looks like it might have been an old shower or something. This is a uh, entryway room door into that gives access into the engine room from the exterior. All the Coast Guard boys had a few little things that they put. Uh, I find these around in various places. Harbor Beach has got it all written on the breakwater wall. And this, I think, that picture right here, we were transporting some of the equipment from the University of Colorado that was uh, used to, uh, for the weather measuring equipment. Steel around, this is the, the roof or the floor of the lantern room up in Spectacle Reef. University of Colorado people doing their equipment installation, another part of it there. And this is the walkway around the lantern room of the exterior, and you can see how large this is. Like White Shoal, the interior of that is 13 feet across, so it really is very, very large. Again, walkway around it, that's looking up at Upper Lake Huron. Entry door, equipment door. Again, another shot of the condition. And a, a trolley that's used to haul things in and out with, I guess. And this is going to and from, from the bigger boat that we had. Uh, this is, uh, do, 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 do. This, this is up in Lake Superior. Yeah, we can look at the book, find out. Um, no, it's not Isle Royale. It is uh, just off uh, Huron Island. This is Huron Island Lighthouse. It'll come to me. Um, I haven't said yet, I don't think. I turned 83 on the 4th of July, and I have a three-minute memory. So uh, if I uh, get things goofed up, you'll know why. Uh, this is uh, Manitou Island Lighthouse with the skeletal structure. This is a little different. There are a few of those around. This sticks off the tip, eastern tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, way up in Lake Superior. But then there are a number of them that are in one picture. For example, St. Joe has an inner and outer pier light. It's in one picture. At that time, I just gave it one number. Uh, I show the range lights of uh, Copper Harbor, and uh, Munising has a range light, and Presqu'ile has a range light. That's two lights. Okay, that's a total of six. I don't give them numbers, but I do show them in the book. So, you know, the state of Michigan got all excited about um, how many we have as a big publicity thing. Anybody in here have the lighthouse license plate? Hey, very good. Three, I see. Okay. That's my image, you know, that's on the license plate. And it is White Shoal. The terminology, the terminology is it has to be posterized, posterized. And it's silk screened, you see, on the license plate. That's the process. Somewhere back around seven, eight, nine months ago, the state of Michigan changed the image on the license plate to something that is nondescript. It has no relationship to anything in Michigan. I was complaining about this to somebody recently. I have a copyright agreement with the state of Michigan that says they use that image until it is discontinued. And they've changed it. I had a I was at some place here not too long ago, and somebody said, hey, you ought to go back to the people in the state of Michigan and get it changed. They've raised $2.5 million on the license plate with that image, and they decided it's some strange reason to change it. That's our government at work. Um, here, I guess I missed this. This is Spectacle Reef. Um, up, this is part of the Gray's Reef Passage that runs up through uh, Point Betsy up to White Shoal and so forth. I have a good friend of mine, he's a captain with uh, Spirit Airlines. Through the years, I guess I've told Tony a few tales about taking pictures and everything. And I just recently recalled, we were looking at this picture, one little ditty that I did. I was going out and I thought, gee, this heavy 14-pound camera, I need something, maybe I can relieve the weight of it. So I stopped at the local apothecary store and I bought, I don't know, five or six feet of surgical tubing, half-inch surgical tubing. And I thought, I'll just latch that to the visor up in the top of the thing and put it around the camera and so forth, and that will give me, you know, relieve a lot of this weight for the camera. My first place I was going to to take pictures happened to be Skilligalee. And I was descending on down towards Skilligalee, taking pictures and so forth. And I got down to somewhere maybe 100 feet or so, and all of a sudden it dawned on me that I had uh, the camera in my right hand, 
the yoke of the airplane in my left hand and that I suddenly needed power. And when I went to let go of the camera, the, <laughs> the bungee cord, I don't know what I did. I didn't go down into Skilligalee, but it was a mess trying to get rid of this thing. I immediately got rid of that thought. Um, White Shoal Lighthouse, this is a, uh, one of the plates that was on it, again, to prevent the reefing ice, close-up shot. The ladder going up into White Shoal, the divot, davit, and the lantern, uh, the lighting, uh, the ladder going up into it. That's about 25 feet up there, and it goes straight up. So that uh, you have to have uh, good legs to get in and out of there. This is White Shoal as it looked about five or six years ago, well after it had been repainted. Finishing all this up here, I guess, in my trust, all the photography uh, is uh, being left to the Clark Historical Library at uh, Central Michigan University. It's always fashionable for an author to read from his book. So, I will read you one little last paragraph somewhere on page 44. When I began this photographic series, lighthouses along the shoreline were most logical and convenient to photograph. As time passed, I continued to expand the collection and flight to the offshore lights was inevitable. Later, the decision to photograph all the lights, especially when I considered publishing a book, left no alternative. At that juncture, I decided not to contemplate the consequences of a mechanical malfunction. In 8,000 hours of flying, I've never experienced total engine failure in a single engine airplane, although in a twin engine aircraft I've had one engine fail and one precautionary shutdown due to an oil leak. You saw the piston that came out of the broken airplane. The consequences of such an event over Lake Superior or Michigan are obvious. I have never considered the use of flotation or survival equipment. Why linger in Lake Superior in March? <laughs> Thank you very much. Straight from the Author has been brought to you by MyWarn. To hear more podcasts like this, visit MyWarn.org. Again, that's MIWarn.org. <laughs>